and welcome to The Dirt After Dark, the, ideally, monthly show dedicated to topics from archaeology and anthropology that are too hot for the main feed. And this month, we're diving into a very hot subject indeed, volcanoes! Yeah, well, well, sort of. We're diving into a very particular trope about volcanoes, that of volcano sacrifices, before pondering tiki culture and litigating my views on art. Um... <laughs> going to come up a lot here. Um, so throw a Les Baxter record on the player and let's get into it. Hey, speaking of tiki culture. What am I what drinking? drinking there? So yeah. I'm, I'm drinking. No one can see this, but I'm showing Anna. Maybe Anna can take a photo. Oh. <laughs> uh. So I'm drinking a, um, it's uh, Aperol pineapple juice. Um, the juice of two Kara Kara oranges. Oh, um, how specific. A little, a tiny airplane bottle of Gosling's 151 proof dark rum. Mm-hmm. And also um, Mount Gay dark rum. Non flammable, like non less, less explosively yeah, flammable. Nor- normal proof. Um, normal proof. I think that's it. But it's very good. Sounds delicious. Yeah. yeah. And some simple syrup. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I decided to make a rummy drink. Um, and I had a few of these the other night when I, not the Kara Kara oranges, that's a new addition because it was a little, little bitter, but I didn't want to downplay the citrusness, um, citruity and citruity. Um, so yeah, I had a few of these the other night and I think there's a point where I like throw in the towel in the script and then have to like get okay. back to it. So it's <laughs> all right. Um, <laughs> listeners, see if you can spot it. <laughs> so, um, as I learned while preparing this script, there are about 20 volcanoes erupting somewhere on Earth on any given day, which you can see wow. I wrote on Earth any gift day. <laughs> any gift day. Much like my favorite movie, Any Give Sunday. <laughs> so, I'll include a list in the show notes so you can go, ooh. Like I did, like yeah, which that's really interesting to me because it is very if you, interesting. If you made, also to me, if you made me guess, if you were like Amber, how many volcanoes do you think are erupting right now? I probably would have guessed somewhere between uh, n- not that many, not twenty. I would have been like I don't I, know I six or perhaps like I, I don't know two hundred like or two. Yeah, yeah. like um, they're either like all the time or almost never. But apparently they are all the time, kind of. Um, so to get started, Anna, (laughs) hello, what do you know or think you know about volcano sacrifices? Well, that's the problem. The think you know part, because I'm pretty sure I, what I know is basically nothing, but I have this idea of, (laughs) yeah, I'm very wise. Uh, no, I just have this idea of what I I'm sure is a trope, and I don't know if it's real, of virgin sacrifices into mm-hmm. a volcano. Okay. And that's that's it. I mean, really, just like to protect yourselves from the the eruption of a volcano and the destru- destruction of your home around the volcano, you very occasionally toss a virgin in there. And in my mind, that association is mostly with Polynesia. Okay. And... Not necessarily with any other places where there are volcanoes, but I don't know. I feel like I've seen, you know, like fantasy stories or 
okay. dumb adventure stories that yeah. involve that aren't necessarily Polynesia, but that do involve like some. Am I thinking of Tintin? It might be Tintin. I don't know. I don't if know. You're thinking of Tintin. Tintin. Okay. Tintin. Um. So uh, okay. let's let's go with basically nothing. Okay. Well, I think is what I that's know. that's interesting. Um. It's. Yeah, I th- and I think that, once again, you are making an excellent audience surrogate. Um, because, yeah, I think a lot of people think, like, is this real? But, like, what you think, you're like, okay, it was maybe, like, Polynesian. It's, like, a Polynesian thing that people talk about, whether or not it's, like, born out in Polynesian culture. I mean, I know in, like, you know, B-movies from the 50s and 60s, it B-movie, definitely shows yeah. up. And it's definitely Polynesian. Yeah. Or, you know, it, it looks Polynesian. And then also in, like, adventure stories that, yeah. like... Yeah. It's like tropical. Yeah. So that's great. Um, all of these things are going to come up. Great. Um, so personally, I knew basically nothing about it apart from when Anna was like, we could do volcano sacrifices. And I came up with two things immediately, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, which is in um, uh, the Marquis de Sade. So Sade, Sade's book, Ju- Juliette, his novel, Juliette. Way. Um mm-hmm. And the 1990 film Joe versus the Volcano. Um, okay. Both of which I will discuss at length here shortly. <laughs> and um, I will continue to be a great audience surrogate because haven't read it, haven't seen it. You don't it. know anything about either of them? Great. I know I know what Juliet is and I know who the Marquis de Sade was. Okay. And I know that that film existed. Well, you know what Juliet is? Do you? I mean... Very, very vaguely. Okay. okay. Yeah. Well, we'll get to that. Okay. Okay. Um, so, because remember, we're going to litigate my art, <laughs> my art interests. Great. Okay. Don't look it up. No cheating. I'm not. I'm trying to figure out the movie in which, um, no, it's just called Quill, maybe? Quills. Kate Winslet in it. Quills. Quills, which I own on DVD. Yes. <laughs> oh, okay. I was trying to remember the name of that movie. Yeah. <laughs> and, um. With Someone it. weird plays the Marquis de Sade. Ah, uh, Jeffrey um, Rush? Oh, never mind. Why was I thinking it was um, Michael Caine? Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, right? And I was like, that can't be right. Oh, very different. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, oh, That's why I was like right, trying well, to look it up because I go, in my head it was Michael Caine. I'm going to go take a cold shower and when I get back, uh, let's turn to where I went next, which is only the most trustworthy of places, Reddit. Um, mm-hmm. So three years ago, someone For else. All your stock tips. Um, I think those are stonk tips. Stonked. Um, so please continue. Three years ago, uh, someone else wondered the same thing as I did, uh, asking, "Where did the trope of sacrificing people into a volcano originate, and did it have any basis in historical fact?" Was this person named Tasha? No. Okay, because. You just said, uh, and later in the script, you just say, I hope that doesn't make Tasha sad. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think we'll get there. We're going to get there. We'll get there. It's like three lines from now. (laughs) We're almost there. Um, So the question didn't generate a ton of response, but I still have to cite my sources and admit that I definitely am a person who performs Google searches as full questions. Um, that's what I hope doesn't make Tasha sad. Then I'm just oh, Tasha, like, Tasha, yeah, Tasha Bergson Michelson, yeah, guest from the Dirt Podcast. Yes, okay. There, we, there's a whole world of full of Tashas that I know, that could but have this been. was an internal. This was an. This was a like 
intra-universe reference. Okay. Gosh. So, I've arrived. I'm with you. Okay, great. Um, but yeah, I definitely was like, dear Google, <laughs> like, is this real? <laughs> um, so one of the responders quoted a chapter entitled Volcanic Religion in Sir James George Fraser's 1890 book, The Golden Bow, which I dug up on Project Gutenberg and have linked in the show notes here. Uh, so you will find it. So it's there. And um, it, yeah, because it's like on the public domain. And I was just like, I'm going to get this book for free. <laughs> um, and um, side note, do you know why I thought Joseph Campbell wrote The Golden Bow? Is it like I just sort of conflated like the hero myth and, and that? Uh, yeah, what hero's journey? Yeah. I don't know. Uh, because I was like, because I first was like, that's awful early for Joseph Campbell to be writing. And then I was like, there's no heroes here. <laughs> yeah, uh, there's also the power of myth. Myth? I don't okay. Know. Okay. Myth. Yeah, well, they're not the same. Joseph Campbell was um, an American professor. Yeah, I, I don't know of what, but um, also not same, same Joseph Campbell. I just, I got... This is something that I finally teased out the the other night for, like, the first time in my life. Like, really, like, put them in the camps of, like, who they aren't. And I'm just <laughs> like, I know who you are now, gentlemen. Also, not to be confused with Joseph Conrad, who I had a problem with just now. Because I was like, Joseph Campbell, is that the guy who... Nope. It's Joseph... <laughs> See, I did it too. Oh, I just did that. Okay. Oh, I'm not even drunk. I just want everyone to know. I'm just very excited. And I've been in my house for three days. Yeah. So, would you like me to oh, read to you from sorry. the Golden Bell? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> and, and this is from the chapter on volcanic religion. Okay. How far these considerations may serve to explain the custom of burning Hercules or gods identified with him in effigy. Effigy? In effigy, or the person of a human being, is a question which deserves to be considered. It might be more easily answered if we were better acquainted with analogous customs in other parts of the world, but our information with regard to the worship of volcanic phenomena in general appears to be very scanty. However, a few facts may be noted. The largest active crater in the world is what... I mean, he, not says, Joseph. he says Kirawea. Fraser, yeah, Fraser says Kirawea because this is the is, 1890s. Yeah, yeah, no, I was just gonna say, uh, and then I forgot his name, and I could only think of not Joseph Campbell. Um, no, he's is, what he says is Kirawea, which we're pretty sure is Kilauea in Hawaii. It is a huge cauldron, several miles in circumference and hundreds of feet deep. The bottom of which is filled with boiling lava in a state of terrific ebullition. Mm. Ebullition. From the red surge rise many black cones or insulated craters, belching columns of gray smoke or pyramids of brilliant flame from their roaring mouths, while torrents of blazing lava roll down their sides to flow into the molten, tossing sea of fire below. The scene is especially impressive by night, when flames of sulfurous blue or metallic red sweep across the heaving billows of the infernal lake, casting a broad glare on the jagged sides of the insulated craters— 
which shoot up eddying streams of fire with a continuous roar, varied at frequent intervals by loud detonations, as spherical masses of fusing lava or bright ignited stones are hurled into the air. It is no wonder that so appalling a spectacle should have impressed the imagination of the natives and filled it with the ideas of the dreadful beings who inhabit the fiery abyss. They considered the great crater, we are told, as the primeval abode of their volcanic deities. The black cones that rise like islands from the burning lake appeared to them the houses where the gods often amused themselves by playing at drafts. The roaring of the furnaces and the crackling of the flames were the music of their dance, and the red flaming surge was the surf wherein they played, sportively swimming on the rolling wave. Good stuff. Yeah, and that has nothing to do with actual volcano sacrifices, but I left it in because it's really, really beautifully written. Yeah, it's very that. evocative. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ebullition. Ebullition. Mm-hmm. Go on. I hope you use that someday in conversation to refer to seltzer or something. Oh. Like, I really enjoy the ebullition of yeah. La Croix versus Canada Dry. Yeah. Hmm. The goddess of the volcano was supposed to inspire people, though to the carnal eye the inspiration resembled intoxication. One of these inspired priestesses solemnly affirmed to an English missionary that she was the goddess Pele herself, and as such, immortal. Assuming a haughty air, she said, I am Pele, I shall never die, and those who follow me when they die, if part of their bones be taken to Kilauea, the name of the volcano, will live with me in the bright fires there. End quote. Restarting the quote for, quote, the worshippers of Pele threw a part of bones of their dead into the volcano under the impression that the spirits of the deceased would then be admitted to the society of the volcanic deities and that their influence would preserve the survivors from the ravages of volcanic fire. End quote for real this time. This last belief may help to explain a custom which some peoples have observed of throwing human victims into volcanoes. The intention of such a practice need not be simply to appease the dreadful volcanic spirits by ministering to their fiendish lust of cruelty. It may be a notion that the souls of the men or women who have been burnt to death in the crater will join the host of demons in the fiery furnace, mitigate their fury, and induce them to spare the works and the life of man. But however we may explain the custom, it has been usual in various parts of the world to throw human beings as well as less precious offerings into the craters of active volcanoes. Thus, the Indians of Nicaragua used to sacrifice men, women, and children to the active volcano Messiah. Not Messiah, like Not the Christ, Messiah. Yeah. yeah, Messiah. Flinging them into the craters. We are told that the victims went willingly to their fate. In the island of Siao, to the north of Celebes, a child was formerly sacrificed every year in order to keep the volcano Guangawu quiet. The poor wretch was tortured to death at the festival which not let... Mm. That sentence startled me and I forgot how to talk. The poor wretch was tortured to death at a festival which lasted nine days. In later times, the place of the child has been taken by a wooden puppet, which is hacked to pieces in the same way. The Galelaris of Halmahera say that the Sultan of Ternate... There's a lot of unfamiliar words there. Where is that? Do you know um, where he's yeah. talking about? Ternate. 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 Um, it's one of the, um, it's one of the, the Spice Islands. Like mm, it's, mm-hmm. it's one of the, I think the Banda Islands. Okay. Okay. 
used annually to require some human victims who were cast into the crater of the volcano to save the island from its ravages. In Java, the volcano Bromo or Bromok is annually worshipped by people who throw offerings of cocoa nuts, plantains, mangoes, rice, chickens, cakes, cloth, money, and so forth into the crater. To the Tengeris, an aboriginal heathen tribe inhabiting the mountains of which Bromo is the central crater, the festival of making offerings to the volcano is the greatest of the year. It's the most wonderful time. It is held at full moon in the twelfth month, the day being fixed by the high priest. Each household prepares its offerings the night before. Very early in the morning, the people set out by moonlight for Mount Bromo, men, women, and children all arrayed in their best. Before they reach the mountain, they must cross a wide sandy plain, where the spirits of the dead are supposed to dwell until by means of the festival of the dead, they obtain admittance to the volcano. It's like uh, Dia de los Muertos. It is a remarkable sight to see thousands of people streaming across the level sands from three different directions. They have to descend into it from the neighboring heights, and the horses break into a gallop when, after the steep descent, they reach the level. The gay and varied colors of the dresses, the fantastic costumes of the priests, the offerings borne along, the whole lit up by the warm beams of the rising sun, lend to the spectacle a peculiar charm. All assemble at the foot of the crater, where a market is held for offerings and refreshments. The scene is a lively one, for hundreds of people must now pay the vows which they made during the year. The priests sit in a long row on mats, and when the high priest appears, the people pray, saying, Bromo, we thank thee for all thy gifts and benefits with which thou ever blessest us, and for which we offer thee our thank offerings today. Bless us, our children, and our children's children. The prayer's over, the high priest gives a signal, and the whole multitude arises and climbs the mountain. On reaching the edge of the crater, the pontiff again blesses the offerings of food, clothes, and money, which are then thrown into the crater. Yet few of them reach the spirits for whom they are intended, for a swarm of urchins now scrambles down into the crater, and at more or less risk to life and limb succeeds in appropriating the greater part of the offerings. The spirits, defrauded of their dues, must take the will for the deed. Tradition says that once in a time of dearth, a chief vowed to sacrifice one of his children to the volcano if the mountain would bless the people with plenty of food. His prayer was answered, and he paid his vow by casting his youngest son as a thank offering into the crater. On the slope of Mount Smeroe, another active volcano in Java, there are two small idols, which the natives worship and pray to when they ascend the mountain. They lay food before the images to obtain the favor of the god of the volcano. In antiquity, people cast into the craters of Etna vessels of gold and silver and all kinds of victims. If the fire swallowed up the offerings, the omen was good, but if it rejected them, some evil was sure to befall the offerer. These examples suggest that a custom of burning men or images may possibly be derived from a practice of throwing them into the craters of active volcanoes in order to appease the dreaded spirits or gods who dwell there. But unless we reckon the fires of Mount Argaeus in Cappadocia and of Mount Chimera in Lycia, there is apparently no record of any mountain in Western Asia which has been in eruption within historical times. What about Vesuvius? I know, right? I don't know. I don't know what his hmm. deal was there. Hmm. I don't know. You missed a big one. I've done There's things a couple like that, of them. though, so I also get missed it. Etna, yeah. the big one. Well, he said no. He said Etna, up above. Here in this cat, in this, in the paragraph I just finished reading. Where? In antiquity, people cast into the craters of Etna vessels of gold and silver and okay. all kinds of victims. Okay. 
Yep. Awesome. <laughs> Thank you. So apart from those two mountains, there's apparently no record of any mountain in Western Asia, which has been in eruption within historical times. On the whole, then, we conclude that the Asiatic custom of burning kings or gods was probably in no way connected with volcanic phenomena. Yet it was perhaps worthwhile to raise the question of the connexion, even though it has received only a negative answer. I love when connection is spelled with an X. <laughs> the whole subject of the influence which physical environment has exercised on the history of religion deserves to be studied with more attention than it has yet received. Well, apart from the emission of, not emission, omission, of those two kind of major volcanoes in his Western Asia paragraph, I liked that a lot. Yeah. So, you know, he, but he wanted there to be more research, which fair enough. It was yeah, 1890. Yeah, no, no, that's, so yeah. in looking through the citations Fraser used in this section, um, the usual suspects of a late 19th century anthropological work are in play. So it includes um, it being chiefly geographical society reports and what appears to be writings by missionaries. Letters from white people. Yeah. To other white people about brown people. Yep. Mm -hmm. Um, so Fraser, in turn, was cited elsewhere, including such places as the 1915 Encyclopedia of Religion and Ethics, um, which wrote in its chapter on Indonesians. Uh, all of them. All of them. Point 39. Volcano gods and sea gods. Volcanoes and seas, with their dangers, in which some perish and from which others escape, are thought by the Indonesians to be inhabited by spirits. In Minahasa, every volcano is supposed to be inhabited by a god, and numerous stories are current about these volcanoes. The volcano Gunu Awu in the island of Xiao received an annual sacrifice of a child. Human skulls were occasionally thrown as, as sacrifices into the crater of Ternate. Every year, the Tangaris in Java hold a great sacrificial festival for the crater of the volcano Bromo. So they're summarizing what he wrote in the Golden Bough above. Yeah. Um, throughout the archipelago, sacrifices were made to the spirits of the sea. The most widely known of all of them is the goddess Nijai or Ratu Loro Kiu, who lives in a beautiful palace at the bottom of the ocean on the south coast of Java, whence she holds sway over the spirits living in the caverns. With great reverence and with offerings, the Javanese enter this region. She is also supposed to live at some definite places on the south coast. There people lie down to sleep in order to receive revelations from her. Those who live by gathering swallows' nests in the crevices of the rocks especially reverence her. A temple has even been built for her there, in which sacrifices are made. Yeah, so that's... Um, and then it then it goes on. So they that, that author is conflating sort of volcanoes and the sea with like yeah. stuff that islanders do. I mean, they do often co-occur in the South Pacific yeah. and um, the Indonesian islands. Yeah. Um, and so I was able to find a bit about sacrifices at Mount Bromo, like actual at Mount Bromo. Um, okay. And I found an article in Forbes written by that same asshole that wrote the other article that we didn't use in our <laughs> Other volcanoes episode. Not even, yep. That, nope. Screw that guy. That guy sucks. Uh, just like super judgy. He's he's like extremely condescending to like. In general, but has also viciously attacked people who even slightly say anything bad about him on Twitter. Oh, cool. He's a real dick. Is he? Like, 
Yes. Like, like, like really aggressive. Oh, that's a shame. Yeah. Fuck that guy. (laughs) Yeah. So we didn't include him at all in our, (laughs) in our main feed episode. I didn't even know um, that. Wow. I mean, I mean, these are two characteristics that tend to go hand in hand. Um, Yeah. But um, yeah, so he, so um, maybe I won't include a link to that piece, but I will include a photo essay published by The Guardian about the Yagnia Casada Festival, which is the festival they were talking about, uh, that Fraser was talking about. Um, and so it is a, a Hindu festival mm. um, because like Indonesia and Malaysia are very, very like culturally diverse places. Um, yeah, that there is a large populate. There is a large Muslim population. There is a large Hindu population. Um, uh, there is a large Buddhist population, and there's a large population of like various um, indigenous religions. A lot um, of different festivals. Yeah, so there's a lot. There's a lot going on in these places, and there there it comes like. Uh, with that, like a lot of ethnic tensions, but also a lot of sort of, um, I don't know, tolerance, uh, intersections. We'll we'll talk about one, like here, uh, in this case. Um, so okay. on the 14th day of the festival, um, the Hindu community members, uh, they're, you know, these are Tengarese folks. Um, the Hindu community members trek up to the edge of the crater. So they walk through what they call the sand sea. And it's like volcanic sand, so it's like black, and it's Ooh. it's quite spooky and beautiful. Like the photos are very beautiful, um, and um, so they go up to the edge of the crater to throw in vegetables and livestock or oh. money or other offerings, but but not people, never people, right? Um, and so what's more is um, as evidence in the Guardian photos, what Fraser was saying about the urchins and stuff. Um, this is like what really happens is non-Hindu people from the Tengarese communities show up and set up nets to catch the offerings like a few feet down. Um, I'm, sh- I'm sure there are some very grateful goats. And um, and so they um, they catch like they catch the offerings and then they leave, you know, goats and chickens and veggies and cash ratio at the end of the day, just like Fraser mentioned. Um and so I, um, and also if I understood correctly, the festival started because um, several hundred years ago, there was a ruler who, um, they were childless, and they asked to be blessed with a child, and the god was like, I will give you like 14 kids if you give me your youngest, like at the end of it. And they were like that I'm willing to make that sacrifice. Um, And so it's not, so it's, it's not quite what Frazier said. Um, But the point here is that they don't, it's not people, not people. Um, So I couldn't find anything about the other cases mentioned. Um, And I don't know if it's like a transliteration issue or if it's just like made up or what. Um, But I can think of a few reasons why a writer, why a writer, like one of his sources, might want to undermine the humanity of an A, Muslim majority population and or B, inhabitants of one of the OG Spice Islands. Um, Yeah. Like 
a couple of the sources that I saw for the, for that section were from Dutch writers. It sort of helps if you think of the people who live in the place where you want all their stuff, if you think of them as less than people. Yeah, exactly. Um, so before we get to the two examples of which I was aware uh, concerning volcano sacrifice and the media, let's take a moment for some real body <laughs> horror. Anna, great, take it away. Here's what it's like to get thrown into a volcano, which comes to us via popular science and is excerpted from Cody Cassidy and Paul Doherty's book released in 2017, And Then You're Dead. The virgin sacrificed into a, vol- a volcano. Volcano. <clears throat> The virgin sacrificed into a volcano is, in reality, almost entirely Hollywood fiction. The cultures accused of doing this just didn't have good volcanoes for sacrificing, and even if they did, hiking all the way up a volcano just to throw someone in is pretty impractical. Still, let's say they made an exception in your case. Let's say you were pitched into a volcano. Your first question, will you sink or float? This may seem like a technicality, but it has some relevance to you. Not whether you would live, of course. Unfortunately, there's no chance of that, but it would change your exact mode of death. Great. Lava is melted rock, so it's two to three times denser than water, depending on its composition. It's dense enough that if you stumbled upon a river of lava, you could trudge across it if you ignored the heat issue. So, yes, you would float, at least initially. But this actually presents a problem. Sinking is a good thing when jumping from tall places into a liquid. If you were tossed from the rim of a decent-sized volcano, you would sink into the lava only a few inches. The heat would be the least of your concerns. It would be like jumping from a five-story building and expecting to survive because you aimed for a sand pit. The result? Not surviving. So, hopefully your volcano has a short drop. That would give you a few more moments. Of course, that would leave the matter of the heat. Yeah, I'd rather just die on impact. Lava is between 1300 and 2200 degrees. It's so hot you wouldn't even cook or burn. You would flash boil, which means all your water would turn to steam. Since you're mostly water, this is bad. Once your water converted to gas, you would turn into a bubbly mess, and all that bubbling would churn and broil the lava into big lava fountains. These fountains can shoot up surprisingly high, five or six feet, and they would cover you in the stuff. So eventually you would drop below the surface, but to be technical, it's not because you were sinking. It's because you were being buried. Well, that's fun. Thank you. I hated it. And I say that because I didn't actually read the excerpt. I just slapped it into the script while I was a few high-proof tiki drinks deep, and I forged ahead. Mm. So let's move on. This was right around the time. You see that there's just like a bunch of stuff in brackets. That's where I like gave up for the night and just like went to bed. Done. Um, so my two, my two examples talking about, um, Saad and Juliet Way. and Joe versus the volcano. Um, so, um, Anna, you are familiar with the Marquis de Saad, whose first name I forget. Marquis, middle name, Mark, Duh. Mark, Mark de Saad. <laughs> Marquis um, Mark de Saad. Oh no. Um, are you familiar with this man? Our listeners may be familiar with this man. I am. Um, loosely. I, I don't really have any historical details in my head, but I do know that uh, his name is where sadism comes from. Yes. And um, I know that he was 
a writer who um, he deliberately wrote very explicit and sort of intentionally shocking material, uh, partially because he was a, a real perv, but also I think as, as a form of art. Yeah. Um, but like he celebrated his own perviness. Yeah. So he, um, so Donatien, Alphonse Francois, Marquis de Sade, um, that's his name. Sure. Um, so, um, he was a writer and a philosopher, um, and he was, um, what he referred to himself as and many other people have since referred to themselves as, as a libertine. Um, and just a a sort of like the idea is like hedonism ad extremis. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and to do what thou wilt. And well, yeah. Um, Aleister Crowley was a notable libertine, as mm-hmm. is um, several people who are alive today that have been me too'd. Uh, because it seems like yep. libertinism doesn't always. There's a difference between what consent one, is key. <laughs> there's a difference between what one writes and what one actually does in one's life. And so when you try to do so, which brings us to Justine and Juliette. So, do you know the difference between Justine and Juliet? One of them's real raunchy. And they both I are. don't. Okay. The, uh, no, not really. Well, no. As you said, consent is key. So, um, Justine was the was the good girl who had a horrible life because she was the victim of all of these things. Um, okay. Juliet was her sister. Who, after being seduced at a young age uh, by a lady nun, um, decided to like be real horny all the time, and uh, so they're both. Do you need to blow your nose? <laughs> blow your nose. Honk. <laughs> Sit here and mournfully flap a tissue at you <laughs> until you let me blow my nose. Um. So okay, like they are. Um. They. They are like philosophical works and they're very anti-establishment. And so it's sort of um, like there's there's stuff going on in them beyond just like the pornography. Um, and I knew I went to grad school with someone who had like a like box set of like the sod of, of like sod's work. And I tried like having a conversation with her about it. And it's clear that like, she didn't get it. And I was just like, Oh no. Oh dear. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> um, but it's, um, it's, it's very evocative and it's meant to be. And so it's meant to like inspire disgust and to be, and to think about like what is disgusting and why is it disgusting and think about sort of like, society and norms and stuff um but um juliette something that happens in juliette is she travels like she she like she gets to like get out and see the world and so there's a point where she's a bit emancipated yeah yeah so she goes to um oh man i meant to send you a photo (laughs) it's like a wood carving um a um the from this that's, that's what were photos in those days for, yeah it's a wood carving from <laughs> this this scene in Juliet which is ah, okay. um, so she and one of her partners um they they're in Naples and so they're like orgying around in Naples and then they get mm. one of the women who um 
like one of like there's a lady and they're just like super horny and they're horny everywhere and then they like tie her up and they're gonna like throw her into Vesuvius as like an act of horniness. Oh, there we go. Okay. Oh, um, it's like it's a Sometimes. horny thing, and so it's like the, not for her. Again, yes. Again, this is not. <laughs> this is. I um, would say that is a real lady boner deflator. Yeah. Well, the, I don't know. Some be, depending. A, I mean, some volcano. people. Some people. There. There. Snuff is a thing. There I is guess, an. Ex- sure. There are like extreme paraphilias sure. and stuff, but I don't I'm, think I don't want to yuck I mean, anybody's yums. It's getting, just to me it seems according to okay. the wood carving. She didn't I actually can't tell if she was like into it or not. Because you can't tell. Okay. Um, no. Um but so there there's a lot there's a lot going on in Saad's <laughs> work. And yeah. it's something that I find very compelling because I think that like art is the place where we do the things that we would never do in life. Because if you could do them, you should just do them. Like, I don't and I don't think that – I argued this in, like, some of my art history classes and people didn't like it or me particularly. So, uh, so just, do you – for you, does that mean that art presents life's possibilities or, like, an idealized form of – like, this is, this is what you could do if you I th- – I think that um, art – I think that we should not assume that something depicted in art in any way is representative, in any way, like, presents something that did happen or that we want to happen. Like, I think that it is sort of the, like, it is like the space of the multiverse kind of thing that, like, art art is where we show. All art is presented in the subjunctive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like art art isn't art is not meant to re I'm going to get into my represent versus represent. So art is not like the role of art is not to just show you it's life. not to record. Exactly. Um okay. and so I think that um and I brought up the I brought this up in my art history classes around things in um I, I brought it up when we talked about like Egyptian art and, you did. um, mm-hmm. and in, and like in any kind of, any kind of art with a specific audience, like you're not necessarily like truth is not something that needs to be a concern of art. Um, like I think that there's a lot more to be gained from, um, sitting with the way like the emotions that art inspires in you and like and and thinking about that so I think that like Saad's work is really um valuable in that sense uh because a lot of it is is just like truly horrendous um but it's valuable in sort of exploring those emotions like I think that like the revulsion is not something that I ever want to feel in my life like I don't want to be horrified I don't want to be repulsed I don't want to be sickened I don't I don't want to hate things or people and so I think that like repulsive art is valuable because it allows you to feel and recognize and kind of engage with like unpleasantness in a way that like 
ideally you wouldn't Min- have in minimal your life. consequence in your in your yeah. real life, yeah, like your real lived experience. Yeah, and I, I think that that's something. Okay. That, yeah, I'm um, on board with that. So yeah, so but that is a place where somebody got thrown into a volcano. Okay, um, and so when Great. I was reading stuff where it's like, oh, like the first time it shows up was in like the the in the Victorian era, and I'm like, excuse me, no, it's not. But I'm not gonna like write letters to the editor about side because I'm not that guy. Um, I'm just gonna tell you about it. Okay. <laughs> Um, and then the other one is the 1990 film Joe versus the Volcano, starring Chet Hayes' dad, Tom Hanks. Okay. Um, and so I watched it for the first time because I knew about this movie. And I so it is a it is a, a 1990 rom com um starring Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan, which you can guess why I didn't watch it ever. Um also, I think I had it confused in my mind with Joe Dirt. So I think David no. Spade was in my mental picture no, of no, this no, movie. No. And now this is presenting a very different. Okay. Yeah. Well, all right. So, okay. And so the movie is about this guy, Joe, who lives in, in Staten Island and he has like a terrible job and he, um, he's a hypochondriac and he goes to the doctor and the doctor is played by Robert Stack from Unsolved Mysteries, um, who like actually what? was an actor, but at that point I think maybe he oh, was okay. just Unsolved Mysteries. Um, and, uh, yeah, he was like total babe in his youth. I like did like a deep dive on his like filmography and I'm just like, Oh, the fifties were kind to you, Robert Stack. Um, and so he goes to his doctor and his doctor is like, Oh yeah, like you're, you have a you have a brain cloud. Like you have an incurable disease. You're you're going you have about five months to live, but you have no symptoms until then. And he's like, What? And um, so he finds out that he only has five months to live. So he quits his terrible job. He asks out his coworker. The date doesn't go great. <clears throat> brain and- cloud. Not a thing. Anna? Is it because his doctor wants him to Can okay. you <laughs> Do you do this when people watch movies with <laughs> Just are you the guy that like shouts out? What's going to happen in the movie? <laughs> yes, you are. <laughs> so um, he he goes home and is like, well, shit, I'm dying. Um, and then the next day, this like businessman shows up and is like, I'm a friend of your doctor's. And he told me about your situation. And I've got a situation that you can help me out with. I make, he makes superconductors and he needs the mining rights to a particular substance that is found in high quantities on this island in the South Pacific called Waponi Wu. And he, and so they're very, um, very uh, superstitious natives who have agreed to give up their mining rights if they, if he can give them somebody to jump into the volcano willingly. And so he's like, you've got a problem. I've got a problem. I will give you access to like unmeasurable wealth, like in this time, like set you up, like let you go on a shopping spree to, um, to New York. Then we're going to send you to LA and then you're going to get on a yacht and you're going to take the yacht to this Island in the South Pacific where you'll be treated like a King. And then at the end, like in your last couple of days that you, cause you're going to be dying anyway, you can just jump into the volcano. And he's like, I'll do it. And um, so then he he goes, he goes to the island. And so I am thinking like that this is what I knew about the movie. And so I thought it was just going to be like a, like a racist movie. I just thought it was going to be like a weird racist movie. 
and with like also a rom-com and I was just like, oh, I don't know about this. Um, and it is possibly one of my favorite movies of all time now. Um, wow. And so I was watching and I was like, this is absurd. And so it's written by the guy who did Moonstruck, which I didn't see because it's a romantic comedy, but he did Doubt, which I really liked. <laughs> John Patrick Shanley. Uh, he's a playwright. And so I... Okay. Um, but so he wrote and directed it. And so what it's, it's like super critical of capitalism and like super critical of like the grind. And it's like got lots of like symbolism and stuff, but he goes on, like he gets on his yacht and, um, uh, Meg Ryan plays three different characters in the movie. Um, and so the third, the the final version of Meg Ryan that you meet is the daughter of the businessman who is taking him to the boat. And um, on the boat, he's like, so tell me more about this place I'm going to. And she's like, okay, well, <laughs> um, in the Roman, towards the end of the Roman empire, a boat of um, Jews, Drew no, oh. Jews, Druids, and Roman soldiers got caught in a storm off the this is like in the Mediterranean the plot of Sahara, and and ended up blown around the Cape of Good Hope. Good Hope, um, and and then ultimately washed ashore at this like sparsely populated island in the South Pacific, and where they were taken in. Like they were embraced by the locals and they married in and they kept their traditions. And um, island full of Jews and Druids. Yeah. So, um, and so it's, and so they, and they are like, and so what they, they talk about is like this, this island, like they, they love orange soda and stuff. And I was just like, oh, yikes. And um, so they get, so there's like stuff that happens and like very existential stuff happens. Like the, the boat sinks and he just has his luggage and he's like on his luggage and his luggage allows him to float. And it's just like a very like it's and and then the, they they're spotted by someone. And the first the first native you see is a um, like a person of size with dark skin who like yells something in another language and has like a necklace made of like hammered soda cans. And then he like takes a swig of orange soda and I'm just like, oh no, this is like going to be super like racist against Pacific Islanders. And then like, it turns out he's Jewish. <laughs> like they, they're just like, oh great. Like someone's here. Like they're here. The people are here. And they, <laughs> and they perform like they, they like have like a band or whatever. And they perform like a like island Hava Nagila <laughs> and and like the two the H Havana Nagila no no this doesn't work so it's Hava Nagila no. and and then the other song that they perform is when Johnny comes marching home Haru Haru and and um and so the chief is played by Abe Vigoda and the uh, like representative of the chief or whatever is played by Nathan Lane, who is just Great. like perfect Nathan yep. Laning all over the place, yep. just and Nathaning around. And so um, they they show up, and and so he has to like confront death is basically what happens. Right. Um, but it's 
kind of amazing. Like it's kind huh. of absolutely this is not at amazing. All what I yeah, and um, and probably because I thought it was Joe Dirt the whole time. Yeah, that's probably it. See, I thought it was just like racist against Pacific Islanders, and you thought it was Joe Dirt. And so there is like, I mean, it's still 1990, so there's a lot of stuff that like isn't great, but it's also um like a deliberate action that like they are not then I mean, there is like a little bit there's a bit like a one of the light motifs is like extractive colonialism um but um the uh, but what happened like but the deliberate choice to say like from like before you even meet anyone there you'd be like we're going to a place that was populated by and I'm just like okay like Jews Druids and Roman soldiers like what's this about and so they have they're just sort it's like he created a fake place um and that I think creating a fake place with like fake culture is a great place to start talking about tiki so as much as we love fruity rum drinks, Amber and I, and as much as Amber wanted to keep believing that tiki isn't so much a cultural appropriation as it is a creation of an entirely new fake culture, it's time for us to sober up. Even the name tiki is a real thing. We'll include a longer dictionary definition in the show notes, but Wikipedia sums it up by saying, quote, In Maori mythology, tiki is the first man created by either Tumatauenga or Tane. He found the first woman, Mari Koriko, in a pond. She seduced him, and he became the father of Hinekau Atata. By extension, a tiki is a large or small wooden or stone carving in humanoid form, although this is a somewhat archaic usage in the Maori language. Carvings similar to tikis and coming to represent deified ancestors are found in most Polynesian cultures. They often serve to mark the boundaries of sacred or significant sites. Oh no. Oh, <laughs> oh no. Oh no. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and the, now I'm going to read from what I hear is a really good LA um, Times article. Yeah. And let me pull it up so you get the title. Um, the title is Tiki Bars Are Built on Cultural Appropriation and Colonial Nostalgia. Where's the Reckoning? By John Birdsall. Quote. There's so much about tiki I love, especially Happy Hour Mai Tais at Trader Vic's in Emeryville on the eastern flank of San Francisco Bay with its barroom views out to a snug marina. Look almost anywhere else in that room, though, at the vintage drawings illustrating cocktails from Vic Bergeron's early days, for example, when Vic's was on a car-choked strip of North Oakland, and the scenery becomes more troubling, suggestive of those Huse illustrations. While the racist tenor of artifacts from America's cultural past have come under scrutiny, team mascots, statues in the public square, restaurants wrapped in colonial nostalgia, Tiki has avoided any serious reckoning over its imagery or the commandeering of objects and symbols from other cultures. It certainly hasn't included voices of Pacific Islanders, whose gods have been rendered into cocktail mugs and medallions and ancient design motifs whose gods have been rendered into cocktail mugs and medallions and ancient design motifs turned into kitschy fabric for mumus and cabana sets. Which is not to say that as pure mixology, Tiki hasn't proven its brilliance. Martin, C nope. Martin Kate of Smuggler's Cove in San Francisco, Jeff Beachbum Berry of Latitude 29 in New Orleans, as well as Tiki's founding fathers, Bergeron and Don Beach. Their artistry and advocacy for Caribbean rums has been a powerful source of delight in a world seriously in need of it. 
Yet this sophisticated culture of drinks has been tethered to a crude imperialist fantasy that has treated the South Pacific as a source of escape. Stephanie Nohalani Tevez, assistant professor in women's studies at the University of Hawaii at Manoa and author of Defiant Indigeneity, the Politics of Hawaiian Performance, said, I do not appreciate colonial nostalgia. She's a Kanaka Maoli, a Hawaii native, born and raised on Oahu, though her family roots extend to Maui. And she also says tiki bars are not cute. And that's the problem with tiki, how to honor its real contributions to mixology while resisting the parts that dishonor indigenous people, misuse their iconography, and exploit their sacred traditions. In a woke world, is there hope for tiki? America's presence in Polynesia is the result of military expansion. We seized Hawaii in the 1890s for its geostrategic value, same with Samoa, carved up by Western colonial powers in 1899, and we exerted control over various islands during and after World War II. Tiki's roots stretched to the 1930s and two profound... Nope and two proudly divey California bars, both run by men with a talent for creating myths as potent as their drinks. Ernest Raymond Beaumont Gant was a drifter who opened a tiny bar in 1933 in an old tailor shop in Hollywood. He called it Don's Beachcomber, eventually Don the Beachcomber. It was, as Kate describes in his 2016 book, Smuggler's Cove, Exotic Cocktails, Rum, and the Cult of Tiki, a rough-edged tropical fantasy bar, one man's vision of an island rum shack. Gant changed his name to Don Beach. Meanwhile, in Oakland, Bergeron built a one-room bar he named Hinky Dinks. In 1937, inspired by a trip to Havana and Bar La Florida, also to Albert Martin's Bonton Bar in New Orleans and Don the Beachcomber, Bergeron had built a backroom addition, the Bamboo Room, for ladies and their escorts, the opening notice read, where the prime decorative flourish was a large staghorn fern. Oh, nice. I do like a staghorn fern. Bergeron took up the moniker Trader Vic, which gave him the aura of an island rum trafficker. His menu portrayed the trader with a smirk and a bucket hat, flanked by topless native women. By the early 1950s, when Bergeron launched his Trader Vic's flagship in San Francisco, and Beach, along with his wife, Cora Sunny Sund, were presiding over Don the Beachcomber branches in Chicago and Palm Springs, all the elements of Tiki's golden era were in place. So are you familiar with Trader Vic's? I am. Have you been? I am. I have not been, but um, (laughs) I, I don't do this as much anymore because I don't get the subscription but i think from about age 13 on we got a subscription to sever magazine Mm -hmm. and i read it like obsessively which is why i know so much about like random food techniques and food things but i remember very clearly there was an article on sort of the golden age of trader vix and you know described like crab rangoon and the cocktails and just the general vibe and sort of what that did culturally in america yeah yeah um so i mean i i used to live like a mile away from from Trader Vic's, like the the mm. flagship there in Emeryville, um, and um, but the first place that I heard of it, that I actually like became familiar with it, was in Oman, um, uh-huh. because Trader Vic's is big in the Middle East and like big in the Gulf, specifically are there big in the franchises Gulf. Franchises there, or is just like the idea of Trader Vic's? There are so there are. Th- Three Trader Vixes, Vix locations in the U.S. 
There mm-hmm. are seven in the UAE, six or seven in the wow. UAE. And the United Arab Emirates, if you aren't aware, is a very small country. It is. Um, I think it's six because there's like two in Dubai, uh, one in Abu Dhabi, one in Umakawain, one. Yeah, they're like everywhere but Sharjah. Like there's a bunch of them in a small country. There's one in Muscat. There's like there's a bunch of them. And like that's where they still are. Yeah, I'm really I'm very interested in this now. But um, it's. Yeah, it's like still still hanging on. Um, But yeah, I've been to a lot of. I've been to a lot of tiki bars and I have a lot of like, I don't know. And so my thing with tiki also is I, there's like, I learned a lot in preparing this episode because there's a lot of stuff that I didn't know anything about because I didn't get anywhere near it. Um, But I got, like, I was into it. One, because my, um, I remember being a child and my, my grandma had this like banquet or whatever it is um like like a a credenza yeah she she had a buffet like a side a sideboard that's what it is i'm using lots of (laughs) terms wrong she Um, had a furniture but she yeah she had a furniture in their dining room and it was just like full of shit and i found this pack of like souvenir napkins from hawaii that was like the most like mid-century like motif (laughs) and Uh when she had gone to Hawaii when she and my grandfather had gone to Hawaii. Um, and which would have been like probably shortly after, uh, world war two kind of thing. Like it just sort of like, Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm like very interested, like, it's just very interesting to me. I'm very interested in, um, Americana and like the colonial nostalgia of Americana, but like just aesthetically, I came to it from my love of rockabilly. Mm-hmm. No tracks. So, <laughs> so it's just it's like just a, the whole aesthetic for you. Yeah, yeah. Which um, I didn't, I didn't know much about this, and so it was yeah. very like humbling. Yeah, complicated feelings about tiki. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. we'll 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 get into some more. But continue with birds all's peace, please. For Hokulanu. Ai Kao, Associate Professor of Ethnic and Gender Studies at the University of Utah, and a native Hawaiian whose roots there stretch back 50 generations, Kirsten's assertion that tiki revival is fun is, te- is oh. textbooks. Yeah, that's Kirsten is some German guy who's like, it's fun. Like, yeah. Because like Germans love weird so American stuff. Yeah. They, they okay. like, like cowboys and tiki is just like a I don't know. Mm. It's something, it's like a, a German cultural phenomenon. Aikau well, disagrees about the fun. It's to remind us who's in control, Aikau says. You have to be in a position of authority to create the caricature that becomes the thing that's fun. End quote. And the first step, she says, is to dehumanize. And she says, quote, you caricature, turn it into fun and play all for the kitschy fake Hawaiian stuff. It reduces a very complex society down to a few key symbols. End quote. Tevez, the University of Hawaii professor, says that for older generations, there's a more complicated story to how settler colonialism co-ops culture. She says they had to learn to survive. It takes a certain amount of privilege, not to mention a certain level of linguistic skills, to mount an organized fight, she said. 
even today in Hawaii on Mauna Kea, site of the five-year-old 30-meter telescope protests in which indigenous protesters are struggling to preserve a sacred site from development, resistance is complicated by the need to survive. These days, Tevis says, quote, there is a much more vocal unwillingness to consent to colonialism and misrepresentation, but we also must labor in the tourism industry, end quote. Epi Amavai is the board president of Samoan Solutions, a Bay Area nonprofit providing services to a large local community. She's a third generation Samoan American who's lived in both Samoa and California. Uh, Amave, uh, Birdsall says parenthetically, agreed to share her personal opinions for this story and emphasized she was not speaking for the company Samoan Solutions. Like Aikau, she sees tiki as theft, and she says, quote, it's an effort for people not directly connected to a thing to take ownership of something that was never theirs. End quote. The appropriation evident in decorative items is, quote, disgusting, grotesque, and it minimizes the beauty, the intelligence, and the sacredness of our cultures, said Daniel Nahave Evalu, who works in social services in the Bay Area Pacific Islander community. Amavai says, quote, we are an inclusive people, so it's quite easy for us to see cultural appropriation and not immediately take offense. But, she says, the more we allow it to continue, the more it looks like consent from the Polynesian community. We have to draw the line somewhere. End quote. Does drawing the line mean canceling tiki bars altogether, organizing boycotts and pressure campaigns? The tiki critics I spoke with pointed to the kind of activism that brings awareness. Polynesian cultures are still very much alive and still being ripped off and disrespected. Tevis says, quote, I personally don't care if people want to drink Mai Tais. On some level, it is just a drink, and I'm not expecting bartenders to change minds. The nostalgia people express through tiki is offensive because it forgets that this colonialism and militarism is ongoing, not temporary, not past, and not over. End quote. Yeah. Um, and so that's just good part article. of this article, um, yeah. which um, gives a little bit of... So I think this article was written in response to an NPR piece that, uh, which like, I keep your socks on, Anna, I know this is going to shock you, that centered white voices and also found like people like uh, from nominally the affected group to be like no it's fine unbelievable because <laughs> they it was like a, a piece on like a tiki light bar that like uh, opened in dc and they're like what's all this about is it appropriation nah and like it's just like okay it's okay i have a samoan friend um, kind of, that's kind of what it was. Um, yeah. and so I'm going to include in the show notes, um, several pieces that I read that I found, um, like of some value, um, a couple things from, <laughs> Great. a couple things from a website called Critiki, um, which I know, right. Um, which is, it's just sort of like they look at, uh, tiki bars and and stuff like that but it's it's a um it's a well-meaning white lady trying to like deal with it it's like mm. trying well, to be like trying to reckon with it and i think and yeah. it's, so it's two articles by her um and i think they're good and i think they're good and they aren't um they they aren't apologetic in the way that some things are and then there's also an article um that a uh, museum professional named Corey Gross wrote for a blog that seems to be about kind of Disney outside Disney sort of thing. I don't, okay. I don't, I don't know. Um, but it's, 
Oh, it's very good. And it has lots of really great reference, like resources in it. But also I don't, I don't, there were definitely points that were good footholds for people who like hate cancel culture. And mm. so I think it, there That's are a couple bad. points where it was kind of, um, maybe they were saying exactly what they wanted to say and it was just sort of like taken, it could be taken in a direction. Like I can't blame the author for the people taking yeah, their words no, out of context, yeah. but they made a very good point that like, if you are not part of the community, you are not allowed to say whether it is or is not cultural appropriation. When the community tells you it Makes is, sense. then it is. then it is. And so yeah. like, I can't sit here and be like, no, it's not. Like I can sit here and be like, oh, this is actually like, um, that this is, this is more harmful than I thought it was because I thought it was something that was completely constructed. Um, and like, I get to say that because I'm not the one who's affected by it. I only benefit from it. And so like, I thought that this is, this is a really good sort of example of like learning about sort of how settler colonialism works that like, I, I get to participate in something and feel good about it because like I'm divorced from the like acts of the group. Of, that's, yeah, yeah. Like the acts of violence. And even if they were not, even if it wasn't sort of genocide perpetuated the way that genocide has been perpetuated against um, indigenous communities on the mainland of what's now the U S as we will see in our next article. <laughs> and I think our last, <laughs> our last article before Anna's very special surprise. Um, oh no, that, I forgot that there was one. Yeah. I was kind of hoping that the, the being tossed into the volcano bit was that. No, no. Um, So this is an essay written by um, Haunani K. Trask, um, who is part of the community. And so this was written, this was first presented at a conference at UC Berkeley in 1991. um, And I'm including a link to it in its published form. Um, And... And so just to give you context that that is provided in the rest of the essay, um, the the app, the tourism apparatus um, is is in Hawaii and starts working on children while they're still in school where they'll they'll like take your class, take a class trip to like the hotel and like see how the hospitality industry works and um, just a lot of stuff that and the, like also advertising campaigns and sort of. Uh, job ads and stuff that kind of suggest that in in uh, Trask's words, tourism is the only game in town. Um, and so, Oof. yeah. So then um, that's something that I really want to bring up here because something that um, one of the things that Gross ends their article with is kind of a like, well, like this is and what people keep saying was like, well, it wasn't if it weren't for for Tiki, I would never have like wanted to learn more about actual Polynesian societies. Um, which like, isn't something that I share because they were very different to me because I didn't think that Tiki had anything to do with anything real and everything to do with like white people. Like, yeah. cause I associate yeah. it with California. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so I had never thought about this and, um, that's my failing for never like thinking about it. but people keep saying like oh well you know it encourages tourism and it encourage like all of this stuff but um i know enough about how the tourism industry works um on like host communities um that like that's not good 
Like that's that's not good. And and so that's something and this is the sort of thing that's come up that came up in our Rapanui episode of of thinking about yeah. like this industry on people. So this is from um the essay Lovely Hula Hands, Corporate Tourism and the Prostitution of Hawaiian Culture. And so Lovely Hula Hands is a title of a song that was really popular. Um and like the fifth like during the like the craze there yeah there was a whole a whole bunch yeah and that's something else that i found at my grandma's house like they had a record player and they had a bunch of like weird like weird music like with like a slide guitar and like no that that, that guy that was like really famous at the with like the zither or the pan flute like that guy there was this guy that was like really famous and it was just like they were, oh, I can think of it as Yanni. No, that's, that's not my right. parents. My parents were into him. But they had a bunch of records and they had like a huh. like a intercom system in their house because their house was very <laughs> 70s. Um, and so they could play records and it would play through the house. And so they were like super religious. So they only had like super old country, gospel, and like instrumental stuff that was like world and like exotica where it's like all white people like doing like bird calls and like playing marimbas and like it was um like it was it was that so like that's what i associate so i associate as a like very white thing um yeah and so um also before i read this i just want to note um trask uses the term prostitution and talks about prostitution and using terms that like um aren't super sex worker friendly but um it is 1991 and also like powerful in the metaphor that they're that they're putting forward. So I just want to just want to say that like I don't feel super great about the way prostitution is characterized in here, but but it's it's kind of harkening back to what you said about art. It's meant to make you feel a reaction and then kind of sit with that reaction and, and examine it. It's like why do I feel this? Yeah. Yeah. Why, and then as, as a metaphor for what she's talking about. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. It's very powerful. Yeah. And so like, I don't, I don't think that like sex work is an inherently demeaning or bad thing. No, but what's described here is. And so I just, just want to put that out yeah. there. Like, Thank you. <laughs> no, it's uh, worth saying. Yeah. Um, of course. All this hype is necessary to hide the truth about tourism, the awful exploitative truth that the industry is the major cause of environmental degradation, low wages, land dispossession, and the highest cost of living in the United States. And this was in 1991. It's now gotten better. Um, while this propaganda is churned out to local residents, the commercialization of Hawaii, Hawaiian culture proceeds with calls for more sensitive marketing of our native values and practices. After all, a prostitute is only as good as her income-producing talents. These talents, in Hawaiian terms, are the hula, the generosity or aloha of our people, the uli or youthful beauty of our women and men, and the continuing allure of our lands and waters, that is, of our place, Hawaii. The selling of these talents must produce income, and the function of the tourism of and the function of tourism and the state of Hawaii is to convert these attributes into profit. The first requirement is the transformation of the product or the cultural attribute, much as a woman must be transformed to look like a prostitute, i.e. someone who is complicitous in her own commodification. Thus, hula dancers wear clown-like makeup, don costumes from a mix of Polynesian cultures, and have and behave in a manner that is smutty and salacious rather than the powerfully er- rather than powerfully erotic. 
The distance between the smutty and the erotic is precisely the distance between Western culture and Hawaiian culture. In the hotel version of the hula, the sacredness of the dance has completely evaporated while the athleticism and sexual expression have been packaged like ornaments. The purpose is entertainment for profit rather than a joyful and truly Hawaiian celebration of human and divine nature. But let us look at an example that is representative of literally hundreds of images that litter the pages of scores of tourist publications from an Aloha Airlines booklet, shamelessly called The Spirit of Aloha. There is a characteristic portrayal of commodified hula dancers, one male and one female. The costuming of the female is more South Pacific, the Cook Islands and Tahiti, where that of the male is more Hawaiian. So he wears a Hawaiian loincloth called a malo. The ad smugly asserts that the hotel dinner service, sorry, the ad smugly asserts the hotel dinner, dinner service as a luau, a Hawaiian feast, which is misspelled, with a continuously open bar, lavish island buffet, and thrilling Polynesian review. Needless to say, Hawaiians did not drink alcohol, eat island buffets, or participate in thrilling reviews before the advent of white people <laughs> in our islands. And then um, they they clarify that there is a macron on the first U of luau. Oh, uh, it's a it's a different letter. <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, so um, printed with the article is a copy of the advertisement for Royal Lahana Luau, and the following caption is added under the advertisement. The above caricature of Polynesian people is a typical example of how corporate tourism in Hawaii commodifies native culture for the global tourism market. Because the selling of Hawaii depends on the prostitution of Hawaiian culture, Hawaiians and other locals must supply the industry with compliant workers. Thus, our Hawaiian people, and not only our Hawaiian culture, become commodities." going on to say, but back to the advertisement. Lahaina, the location of the resort and once the capital of Hawaii, is called Royal because of its past association with our ali'i, or chiefs. Far from being royal today, Lahaina is sadly inundated by California yuppies, drug addicts, and valley girls. The male figure in the background is muscular, partially clothed, and unsmiling. Apparently, he is supposed to convey an, an image of Polynesian sexuality that is both enticing and threatening. The white women in the audience can marvel at his physique while, and, and still remain safely distant. Like the black American male, this Polynesian man is a fantasy animal. He casts a slightly, he casts a slightly malevolent glance at our costumed maiden, whose body posture and barely covered breasts contradict the innocent smile on her face. Finally, the wondrous allure preferred to referred to in the ad applies to more than just the dancers and their performances. The physical beauty of Hawaii, alive under the stars, is the larger reference. In this little grotesquerie, the falseness and commercialism fairly scream out from the page. Our language, our dance, our young people, even our costumes of eating are used to ensnare tourists. And the price is only a paltry $39.95, not much for 2,000 years of culture. Of course, the hotel will rake in tens of thousands of dollars on just the luau alone. And our young couple will make a pittance. The rest of the magazine, like most tourist propaganda, commodifies virtually every part of Hawaii. Mountains, beaches, coastlines, rivers, flowers, our volcano goddess Pele, reefs and fish, rural Hawaiian communities, even Hawaiian activists. The point, of course... She's snoring. 
a dreamer. The point, of course, is that everything in Hawaii can be yours. That is, you, the tourist, the non-native, the visitor, the place, the people, the culture, even our identity as a native people is for sale. Thus, the magazine, like the airline that prints it, is called Aloha. The use of this word in a capitalist context is so far removed from any Hawaiian cultural sense that it is literally meaningless. Thus, Hawaii, like a lovely woman, is there for the taking. Those with only a little money get a brief encounter. Those with a lot of money, like the Japanese, get more. The state and counties will give tax breaks, build infrastructure, and have the governor personally welcome tourists to ensure they keep coming. Just as the pimp regulates prices and guards the commodity of the prostitute, so the state bargains with developers for access to Hawaiian land and culture. Who builds the biggest resorts to attract the most affluent tourists gets the best deal. More hotel rooms, golf courses, and restaurants approved. Permits are fast-tracked. High intensity limits are suspended. New groundwater sources are miraculously found. Hawaiians, meanwhile, have little choice in this. We, fill, we can fill up the unemployment lines, enter the military, work in the tourist industry, or leave Hawaii. Increasingly, Hawaiians are leaving, not by choice, but out of economic necessity. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. And it's, it's very powerful. And it's also yeah. um, very powerful to think about this being written 30 years ago. <sighs> and that... Yeah. Um, I know that activism has ramped up, but I don't know that things have gotten better on Hawaii. I know very little about the events there and, and sort of like what, you know, in general, what it's like on the ground for that community. But overall, like in general, this, this episode, I have much to think about. Yeah, there is a lot to think about. Um, and so, um, it's how we like it. I want to end with oh, no. um, something that is um, special surprise a for special me. surprise for Anna that I found, and then I told Anna I was going to make this special surprise, and then I re- figured out what it actually was, and so now the special, the true special surprise was for me. Okay, okay. <laughs> and so um, I think it's really fascinating that you, and so. Also, to conclude, you can find other, you can find the rest of this, you can find other articles, you can find some thoughts by like well-meaning white people as they like kind of reckon with this. But I thought that it would be better to actually like put this in your ears and give you a chance to listen to these things, like like a, a seminal essay from 30 years ago and also some more recent stuff. Um, but if you want, you can go look at those other things. Um, because maybe you also like Remy drinks and you're just like, oh no. Um, and, and you just like want to think through this, um, do that. But now that is the end of the serious stuff. Okay. Um, it's very fascinating, Anna, that you mentioned adventure stories (laughs) and, and how volcano sacrifices could come up in sort of adventure stories or fantasy and, um, I hope you like this because I paid $3 for it on the Kindle store. <laughs> okay. Um, what am I clicking on? Something? Nope. Cause I'm going to read it to you because oh, okay. I um, okay. don't know how to get it out of my Kindle cloud reader. Um, and also you wouldn't read it if you saw the cover. So I'm going to be reading to you from, life. I mean, you do, I mean, really. I do know your life. Oh, it's loading. Okay. So, 
Um, I found I found it's a very orange. I found a story. What? I can see it reflected oh, the in glow. your glasses. And it's very orange. Um, <laughs> so I. Um, so when I was googling volcano sacrifices, this was one of the results I got. And this is um, this is an adaptation, uh, an engagement with the works of Jules Verne. Um, I was wondering if it was going to be is a journey to the center of the earth. Um, it, it is in a way um, because this is this is um, an engagement by Cecilia Chase, who writes, "Sacrificed to the volcano, an erotic journey to the center of the earth." No, part three. No, ever no. So part three. <laughs> I didn't get parts one and two, um, but I got this and I read the whole. I hope you reimburse yourself. For I that. read the whole thing and like <sighs> got to the end and was like, nobody got thrown into a volcano. And then I went back and I was like, well, what am I actually going to read? Because I was like, I got to find like an excerpt to read to Anna. I got to find like a really good excerpt that I read to Anna and like nothing was working. Um, and also. I spent a lot of time on this. This is sort of like when I gave up. So, um, are you familiar? Are you familiar with steampunk erotica? Yeah, duh. Well, yeah, I know it exists. I don't. You, I, I'm not a are, consumer. Are of you it. familiar with Lady Clankington? <laughs> no, she is a. Um, <laughs> she is a. Um, cosplay model and like yeah. fetish model I'm gonna, who, I'm gonna do a quick google who um great name who like specializes in steampunk horny steampunk mm. stuff horny steampunk and she seems to be associate she's an associated act with this guy who's like a, a he's a maker and um and Frau Wettenwatten took offense at her manservant's advances toward Lady Clankington. Oh, this is the YouTube video? So I watched that. So it's a YouTube video. Um, oh, my God. Yeah. So go to that. Go to that YouTube video and then scroll down to see the most pedantic comment ever made. And so this is an ad for her, uh, for Lady Clankington's a cabinet of carnal curiosities. And so mm -hmm. she did her own line of sex toys. And it's like, it's like the death ray and like the little ray gun. And so this is an ad for it or something. And, um, but the comment about titles, do you see that? I see. Well, I see a different pedantic comment. Contrary to the practice in America, in many countries of the old continent, duels were only fought among social equals. A social equal to Lady Clankington would be a Frau von Wedenwatten. Frau alone means nothing. That one, where I was just like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> like, why would you? Um, sir. <laughs> yeah. Sir. <laughs> Undeniably, sir. Um, so... I went down a real rabbit hole full of gears and it was steam powered. Um, yeah. Like reading and about. There was a, a dirigible. Did I, so people talked about dirigibles. So did I tell you about the time that I got taken to the uh, Dickens Christmas fair? And I had. Oh two, no, but I can imagine you. I had you two at separate that. panic attacks. Yeah. And then um, there were so many doctors who, and I was just like, this is no bullshit. I hate yeah. this. Uh, the well-known Dickensian character. 
Doctor Who. Um, okay, read me read me this okay, thing. Great. So I'm just gonna read the um <laughs> So I'm just gonna read the like uh back of the cover, I guess. It's a okay, yeah. And then you oh, yeah. can tell me at what point I should have known that no one was going to get thrown into a volcano. Um, because it turns out that came before I paid for it. That's is that, a, is that a euphemism? It's actually thrown into a volcano, or is it like in a way? Continue. This is a metaphor. Continue. So Sacrifice to the Volcano, an erotic journey to the center of the earth, part three by Jules Verne and Cecilia Chase, a Victorian girls in danger story by the Evil Genius Society. I don't think any of this is by Jules Verne. Warning, 18 plus content. <laughs> Jules Verne's classic tale of Victorian adventure, Monster Erotica edition. So it's Monster Erotica, which I like didn't know. And then a show got showed up and I was like, ooh. <laughs> um, abridged from the original and expended with tons of erotic deals. Expended? <laughs> Spell check, y'all. I mean, I mean, like, this girl got paid by me specifically. Fine. So yeah, fine, fine, great, good for her. So you know, it's probably good that so I paid it's her. So the I expended can... version with tons of erotic details. This version of Journey to the Center of the Earth has everything you always thought was missing: Victorian girls in danger, Cthulhu cultists, lust-starved spirits, handsome Scandinavian guides, and of course, hungry dinosaur men at the hollow center of the earth. Jules Verne has never been this steamy. This is the point. You should, this is, this is that point. No, no. <laughs> At this point, you should have known. Um, <laughs> like, also, this is just like the, like, the internet is so horny. I know that our listeners already know that I'm terrified of like the horniness of the internet. And yet I found myself in this position. Like, I don't, whatever. I guess this does something for people, which is fine. Along with her adventurous stepfather. No. That's the point where I was like, oh, come on. <laughs> no. Young academic Letty has crossed island. Has crossed island? No. She has crossed Iceland. Oh. She has crossed Iceland to reach the legendary entrance of an entire world beneath the earth. The mouth. Why are all steampunk ladies named Letitia? They're all named Letitia. I don't know. There was a Viking. There was a Viking lady named Veronica, and I was like, "What?" (laughs) Yeah, they both begin with V. You know, Veronica with a K. Um, To aid the and to aid them in these trials is the heroic and handsome Hans, a Viking descended hunter whom Letty cannot stop admiring. But the disapproval of a stepfather who prefers Letty's attentions not be so warm for the Viking hero is the least of her worries. A disturbing vision warns Letty that creatures of legend might inhabit that th- might inhabit this remote corner of the world. Kidnapping by mysterious monks, ritual marriage to a beast from a pit, and the lusty attention of lizard men all stand between Letty and the sacrifice of her virginity to a Viking god atop the volcano. Oops. Oops. There it is. <laughs> Oop. And like, I actually like got through her having sex with the Viking guy to be like, there's no way getting thrown into hang a volcano. <laughs> <laughs> no, hang on a minute. And <laughs> well, bless you for finding that and for paying for it. Um, but I also, if you're interested in, um, actually, also, I, I absolutely would have read this. And by read, I mean, like, I would have skimmed it just to be like, <laughs> I mean, it's only 50 pages. So it's, and it's a quick read. Um, I have some notes, um, but she, if you're also interested in reading other things from Cecilia Chase, um, 
we've got a couple series here. We've got the Unicorn series. <laughs> um, so Unicorn, Horn of Desire. Unicorn, Horn of Lust. Unicorn, Horn of Submission. Unicorn, Fever for Horn. And then the final installment in that series, Billionaire Unicorn. Collaboration with Chuck Tingle. <laughs> um, oh, we got dragons. Double penetrated by a billionaire unicorn. No, that was what the Shogoth did. And I was just like, oh no. Just all of it, I was just like, oh no. <laughs> Virgin's bargain with the dragon. Depravity of the dragon seduction. Ready for the, dr- ready for the dragon's lust. And vessel for the dragon's seed. Uh, curse, curse of the Aztec Pearls. Captured on reality TV. Curse of the Aztec Pearls. Stolen Bride for the Jungle Beast. Uh, I object to all of this. Not to yuck anybody's yums, but just like, I have no mental or emotional bandwidth to um, deal with this. There's a billionaire yeti. Ah, okay. I'm glad I stuck around for that. Yeah. It's a BBW paranormal alpha romance. Great. Yep. I'm... While we while we wrap up, I'm just going to send this over to you so you can see the cover. Thank you so much. Well, I learned a lot today. <laughs> we all did. Wow, I hate it. There's Billionaire Yeti. Man, they could have done so much better art. I mean, I well, uh, well, I hope everyone enjoyed this. Thank you for this. all of this. I'm learning so much. I had I had fun. I had fun and contemplation. I also am having those things still now. <laughs> Mostly contemplation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks, everybody. Thank you. (laughs) Goodbye. (laughs) See you next month.